First Cor- First Corinthians 15, verses 21 through 28. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected, accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Thank you, Lyndon, for reading the word of God and to our uh, music team for leading us in singing worship to God. I am so excited uh, to preach this text to you, but buckle up because the, the, the chapter takes a turn that you might not expect. In fact, if I were writing this, this chapter, I might go from last week's preaching text all the way down to verse 35 and skip this, this material that we're going to look at today. But as we'll see, it is absolutely essential to understanding the full argument that, that the Holy Spirit is trying to make through the Apostle Paul about the fruitfulness and the power and the glory of the resurrection of Jesus and consequently our own resurrection from the dead. Now it is true that when we start talking about resurrection, whether it be Christ's resurrection or our own resurrection, that these things must be spiritually discerned. In other words, without the help of the Holy Spirit, we cannot receive this glorious truth. All the more what we're going to talk about today. It it begins familiar enough, but then we're going to get into some fairly uncharted waters as we consider God's plan of salvation and the pivotal role of resurrection in that plan. So let's pause and pray that God by his spirit would open our minds and soften our hearts as we have sung to receive the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Lord, these are glorious truths that you have written down and they are here for us to read. Now help us to understand them. Help us to receive the true a statement that Jesus Christ died for our sins according with the scriptures, was raised from the dead according to the scriptures, and that we will rise with him. And then, Lord, help us to understand his kingdom and our place in his kingdom and your place over his kingdom and how you have achieved all this by resurrection. Spirit, help me, fill me, guide me, guard me, that I may preach clearly and faithfully the words of your scripture. And Holy Spirit, I pray, please, fill this church 
with knowledge and understanding of things too great to be grasped without your help. I pray these things depending entirely on you for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, our resurrected King. Amen. Now the first two verses in today's preaching text are familiar. Uh, in fact, they, they basically wrap up what we have been looking at for the last two weeks. So two weeks ago, Blair Hansen preached, and the point of his sermon was basically, Jesus Christ died for our sins and his body came back to life. And he's still alive. So that's, that's the first thing that we have to understand about, about the gospel, is that Jesus died and he rose again. And then last week, our goal was to show that just as Christ died and rose again, so also we will rise from the dead if we believe in him. So, so two hours of preaching can be condensed to the, those two points. Jesus died and rose again. We, though we die, will rise again. And that's what the first two verses of today's text recap for us. Take a look at them with me, verses 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. As by death came a man, we all die because we are all from Adam. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, Quite literally, and this is hard for us in our modern post-enlightenment individualistic society and culture, but we were literally in Adam when he sinned. It, we have all come out from Adam. And having come out from Adam over the course of many thousands of years, one generation at a time, we were all present in him when he sinned. Now, uh, it's true that we were passive in, in his sin, like we didn't sin when he sinned, and yet the consequence of that, because we were in him and we have come forth from him after his sin, we take in ourselves a sin nature and we act on that sin nature. Therefore, the just consequences of death for sin are ours as much as Adam's. Now that's a whole nother sermon to get into, but the point is this. Just as Adam sinned and died, so we sin and die. The wages for sin is death. The good news is, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Just as we are all from Adam, those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are literally in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, I think the, the, the best image for me to think of is when Noah and his family got into the ark, they were in the ark. And the ark carried them through the final judgment. If you're in Christ, you have put yourself in Christ. Or put more accurately, the Holy Spirit has put you in Christ. And you will go through the final judgment. All of us who by faith receive the grace of God are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you will be raised from the dead. Bodily. Your bodies, though they die, because you are in Christ, after Christ returns, he will call you to life and you will rise from the dead. That's, that's really what we've gone over the last two weeks. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ 
all shall be made alive. And just as we were passive in Adam, so we are passive in Christ. Adam fell and we fell with him. Christ was raised and we rise with him. We are passively falling into death and passively rising unto eternal life in our bodies. Just as in Adam our bodies die, so also in Christ our bodies will be raised from the dead. And so that's, that's just sort of the background of what we're going to talk about today. Paul then proceeds to give us a chain of events that necessarily flow from Christ's resurrection. In other words, if you declare that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, necessarily these things will happen. We are, they are so united with his resurrection that they will come to pass. You cannot have the first, which is the resurrection of Christ, and not get the last, which is what we're going to look at today. So there's three events that Paul is going to take us through. The first We've already gone over that Jesus was raised. The second, we've already gone over that, that we will be raised with Christ. And the third, and this is the part where, where all of a sudden the chapter goes in a direction that we were not expecting. But it's absolutely essential to really fill out the doctrine of resurrection. And that is, then comes the end. Or to put another way, and we'll, we'll explore this more in more detail, Resurrection will achieve its goal. Christ is raised first, we're raised second. And then Paul says, resurrection of Christ and of us will achieve its goal. Resurrection is the means toward an end. God is raising Jesus and us for some greater purpose. The resurrection of Christ and of us is not the end, is not the goal. It is the means by which God accomplishes something. And that's what we're going to really spend our time on this morning. But just to go through the text, first, Jesus was raised. Take a look at the first half of verse 23. Uh, so verses 21 and 22, Christ, just as we all die in Adam, so we will be made alive in Christ. But, verse 23, each in his own order. There's an order to this. In order for God to bring this about, he has a sequence of events. Uh, Christ, the first fruits. That is, Jesus is the first human being to be raised up in glory. He's not the last. He's the first. He's the first fruits. And, and first fruits is this imagery of you, you have a harvest and you take, you take a, a sheaf of, of that harvest, perhaps the best sample of that harvest, but more importantly, the first. And in the Old Testament, you would take it to the temple or the tabernacle and you'd give it to God as your offering. So Jesus is the first fruits of a great harvest. That, and, and just as that first fruits of the harvest that you would offer your grain or you'd offer the firstborn of your flock to God. So the, the, the remaining harvest is of like kind, which just reinforces the point we made last week that we'll be raised bodily. If Jesus Christ was raised in his body, so we will be raised in our body because we are of one harvest. He is the first fruits, but our resurrection will be exactly like his. First Jesus Christ, second, continuing on, then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Again, this is what we've gone over. 
and, and we get a temporal marker here. When will we be raised from the dead? Are we raised from the dead yet? There are some people who are saying that. You might hear that, you know, well, I've been raised from the dead. I'm living in resurrection life because I've uh, been saved. I've been born again. I'm, I've been raised up a new creature. That's, as I said last week, not what Paul is talking about. And we have the temporal marker explicitly here. Then at his coming. When Jesus Christ comes back, which he will, that is the moment that those who belong to Christ will be raised from the dead. Temporal marker. Those who belong to Christ. I want you to notice something. In the church, what is most common, I'm not saying it's exclusive, but what's most common is is to say, when you die, you go to heaven. And I'm not disputing that. There are, there, are, there are places you could go. Today you'll be with me in paradise, Jesus said to the thief on the cross. Uh, Paul says, you know, I don't know if I would rather, in, in Philippians 1, I don't know if I would rather die or live. I think I'd rather die and go and be with Christ. But it's more necessary for you that I live, so I probably won't die and go to heaven just yet. So there are places that you can go in Scripture that affirm that when you die, your soul goes to heaven. But I want you to notice here Christ is raised from the dead, then when he returns, those who belong to Christ. There's no talk about going to heaven. He goes straight from death to resurrection. There's no mention of what theologians call the intermediate stage of your soul going up to heaven. Uh, It's just, well, you were dead, and when Jesus Christ comes back, you'll be raised back to life. And so uh, the point I just want to make here in passing is The question is not, is the Bible clear about bodily resurrection from the dead? That's the emphasis of the New Testament scriptures. The emphasis is resurrection. What is less clear, there are less passages that you can go to to talk about going to heaven when you die. Now there are some, I gave you two, but there are fewer of them than there are about resurrection from the dead. And in fact, in this chapter, the emphasis is entirely on bodily resurrection. So you die, but then your body will rise. When? When Jesus Christ returns. And Paul skips over what is so important to us. Dying and our souls going to heaven. So I I want to note that, but now move on. I'm not denying that we go to heaven. That's not the focus of this chapter. Neither is it the focus of the New Testament scriptures. Focus is always resurrection from the dead. Now we get to the third part, which is going to occupy uh, most of our time. So each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Third, verse 24, then comes the end. What does Paul mean, then comes the end? If, if we put this at the end of a movie, the end, what we mean is the movie is over That's not what Paul talks about here. He's really talking about the beginning of a whole new something wonderful. This is not the end of something as in its finality or its termination. Uh, The way in which Paul is using the word end, telos in the Greek is, then comes the goal. Then resurrection, first of Christ, then of us, will achieve its goal. So, What he's basically saying is resurrection of Christ and of us is the means toward a greater goal, a greater end. God is trying to accomplish something. 
And the way in which he's going to accomplish that something is by raising Jesus from the dead and then at his coming, us from the dead. So what is it that God is trying to accomplish? What is it that God accomplishes by raising us from the dead? Take a look at the second half of verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. What is the goal of resurrection? What is God's goal by which he accomplishes that goal through resurrection? It's the deliverance by Christ to God the Father of a kingdom. That's the goal of resurrection. Resurrection will achieve its goal. What is the goal? A kingdom for God the Father. Well, what does it mean? What, what is Paul talking about? This is, again, we're in unfamiliar territory for most of us. What do you mean that the whole goal is the deliverance of a kingdom? We talk about a kingdom, but do we realize that that is the goal of the gospel? That's the goal of salvation history. Uh, when, when God installs David on the throne in, in 1000 BC, the goal some thousands of years later is that the son of David will deliver a kingdom to God the Father. You could pick any event in, in the scriptures, any event in, in history. The goal is always driving toward the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of us. Why? For the deliverance of a kingdom. Well, what does that mean? It means two things according to this text. The first thing that it means that Christ will deliver a kingdom to God the Father is that in delivering a kingdom to God the Father, Christ will destroy all rebellious and rival powers. So the deliverance of a kingdom includes the king destroying all rebel and rival powers. There will be no one who opposes God when Jesus delivers this kingdom to God the Father. The second thing that it means is that Jesus Christ, the king of this kingdom, will submit himself to God the Father. Now the first answer is still sort of, well, I think we could get our heads around it. It's the second one. What do you mean that the deliverance of a kingdom is the subjection or the submission voluntarily, willingly, of Jesus Christ, the resurrected king of this kingdom, to God the Father? That's what we're, we're going to look at and see why that is so important to the gospel and why that's so important when we're talking about resurrection from the dead. But before we get there, let's take a look at the first answer. What does it mean that Jesus Christ will deliver a kingdom to God the Father? Well, it means that Jesus will destroy all rebellious and rival powers. If we keep reading in verse 24... Well, let's read all of 24 just to get the flow. Then comes the end. Then resurrection will achieve its goal. Which is what? When he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So there it's very clear. It's very explicit. The delivering of a kingdom is the destruction of every rule, every authority, and every power. Now, obviously, what Paul means there is every rebellious rule, every rebellious authority, every rebellious power. That is, everyone and everything that has ever opposed God. 
Jesus will destroy it. And after he has destroyed it and them, he will deliver this kingdom that has no opposition to God, to God. What are these rebellious and rival powers? Well, they are the agents and the consequences of insubordination to God. Insubordination to God. You know, that's, a, that's sort of a, a government term or a military term. Insubordination is when you refuse the authority of your superior. And so every rule, authority, and power that will be destroyed is any rule, authority, and power that has refused the authority of, of their superior, which is God. And we call that act of insubordination, we call that sin. So the agents and the consequences of sin will be destroyed. That's what Paul is saying here. Specifically, what are we talking about? Well, the Bible only gives us two agents that we know of. That is, fallen angels. Satan as the leader of these fallen angels. But every angel that has rebelled against God has fallen and become a demon. Jesus is going to destroy them. And fallen humanity. Humanity born, uh, made, created in the image of God. We followed after the enticement of Satan, just as these other angels did. And humanity and Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And we call that rebellion sin. So what else is Jesus going to abolish and destroy? Sin. In this kingdom that Jesus delivers over to God the Father, there will no longer be any sin. And if there is no sin, what will there also be nothing of? There will be no more death. And, and, and so when you think about it, God has, has really, when, when we rebel against Him, God, because He is all-powerful, because He is sovereign, He will not endure indefinitely with rebellion. That's why the consequences for rebellion, the wages of sin, is the same thing. Consequences for rebellion against God. Another way of saying that, the wages for sin, that is what you earn for refusing to subject yourself to God is death. He will destroy you if you will not subject or submit yourself to His rule, to His authority. And, and what we're told here is that Jesus, in delivering a kingdom to God, does away with every angel and every human who endures in opposition to God. And if you do away with every angel and every human who resists and refuses to submit to God, then you do away with sin, because that is sin. And if you do away with sin, you do away with death. Now how is Jesus going to do this? There's two ways that Jesus is going to do this. The first one is positive, and the second one is negative. The first way that Jesus is going to uh, destroy all rebellious and rival powers is by resurrection from the dead. He's going to raise up people who have subjected themselves to him and his rule. So how does God, uh, Jesus destroy rebellion? Well, he dies to pay the, the penalty, which is death, for those who receive him. What does it mean to receive him? It means 
to voluntarily, willingly, by the power of God's Spirit, to submit yourself to the authority of God in Christ. So if you, having been a rebel, repent of your rebellion and submit yourself to God by submitting yourself to Jesus Christ and you allow him to take the penalty for your rebellion, he will raise you up. And, and those whom God raises up become the subjects in, in his submissive, subjected kingdom. So that's the first way. It's a very positive way. That, that God destroys, or Jesus destroys, sin and death by raising us up to life. The second way that Jesus destroys all rebellious and rival powers is he throws them into the lake of fire. So there's only two options, really. Either we submit ourselves to Christ, give him our sin, let him die for us so that he will raise us up so that we can live in a kingdom that is not opposed to God, where there is no sin, where there is no death, or the, the perfect, just end for our rebellion will come at the final judgment, which is the second death, which is destruction, which is being thrown into the lake of fire where we will endure forever separate from God and outside of his kingdom. See, destruction here is not annihilation, but to be thrown outside of the kingdom, uh, to, be, to be exiled indefinitely in hell. Just listen. I'm going to read this. This is the only time I'm going to deviate from our text because there's enough in the text, but I think this is important. So option one for how God, Jesus is going to deliver a kingdom to God the Father is by raising subjects from the dead. Now, option two is to destroy the enduring rebellious powers. Revelation 20, verses 13 to 15, this is the final judgment. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Now look at verse, or just listen, sorry, to verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So not only are rebellious angels and rebellious humans destroyed, but death and that place where the dead were held, that is the dead who were in, enduring rebellion against God when they died, they, those two abstract concepts are also destroyed. In other words, what God is saying is there will no longer be a place for rebels. There will no longer be sin. There will no longer be death. Because everyone who rebelled has been destroyed, therefore death has been destroyed. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the goal of resurrection is that Jesus will deliver a kingdom to God the Father. What does this mean? Well, the first thing that it means is that Jesus will destroy every rebel rule, every rebel power, every rebel authority. Fallen angels, fallen humanity, sin and death will be no more. And in fact, we're told that the reign of Christ from the time of his resurrection until our own resurrection from the dead, the reign of Christ is purposed, intent upon defeating these foes. That's what Jesus is busy doing. 
Take a look at verses 25 and 26. For he must, that is Christ, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is an allusion to Psalm 8.6, Psalm 110, verse 1. The whole point is this, that, that God is going to put all of the enemies of God under the feet of the Messiah. Jesus is putting all of the enemies of God under his feet. Take a look at verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I love this verse. God is going to destroy death. How much do you hate death? God hates it more. How much do you consider death to be your enemy? The enemy of your family, the enemy of your loved ones. God considers death to be his enemy more. And in fact, Jesus is busy right now destroying death. And God, God will destroy death through Christ. And when Jesus finally destroys death, then he'll hand over the kingdom to God the Father. And this kingdom will be, from, be free from fallen angels, fallen humans, sin, and death. And this kingdom will have Jesus as its all-powerful king. And just to repeat, how is Jesus going to do this? How is Jesus defeating death? Well, he's calling people out of death into life. He is saying, I will die for your sins. Just submit yourself to me, and in submitting yourself to me, submit yourself to my Father, and I will raise you up on the last day. And this will be accomplished when Jesus returns. And the only reason Jesus hasn't returned yet is that he is not finished calling people out of this kingdom of death into his kingdom of life. But when he calls the last elect man, woman, or child into his kingdom, then he'll return. He'll come back. And we'll be raised back to life, and that will be the destruction of death. You see, resurrection destroys death. It is the means by which God says, no death, you don't win. No death, you cannot lay claim to these my children. No death, you cannot have these subjects for your kingdom. They are subjects in my kingdom. They are no longer rebels. They are no longer insubordinate. They are mine, says God through Christ. That's great news. You see, that's why resurrection from the dead is absolutely essential to our understanding of the gospel. If we're not raised from the dead, then Jesus can't have claimed to have destroyed death. Now, someone might say, well, what if we just go to heaven in our souls? Isn't that the destruction of death? No. God is not going to permit death to keep any trophies. He's not going to destroy death and say, but you can have these bodies as sort of a consolation prize. No. The destruction of death absolutely requires that God takes back the bodies that death claimed. And Jesus Christ says, you can't have that body. The body belongs to me in my kingdom. I'm going to destroy you, death, by taking back the bodies. And then, you know, even though the, those who continue in the rebellion against God, do you know what God does? What I just read it in Revelation 20, He raises the unsaved. 
He raises their bodies. He says, you're not even going to keep the bodies of the unsaved. And then God throws death into the lake of fire. It's the same place where he throws the resurrected unsaved people so that death is their equal, not their champion. You see, death dies the same death, the second death, that all the people and angels that death had claimed. I mean, I know that. That's a big thought. But the whole point is death keeps nothing. Death will not keep your body as a trophy or consolation prize. These bodies will live in the kingdom that Jesus delivers to the Father. That's good news. That's the total power of Christ. Now we come to the second answer. What does it mean that Jesus will deliver a kingdom to God the Father? The deliverance of a kingdom to God the Father means that God, Jesus will destroy all rebellious and rival powers. And secondly, it means that Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom that he delivers, Jesus Christ himself, the king, will subject himself and his kingdom to God the Father. Now this, this, let's just pause and invite the Holy Spirit to help us to understand this. This is a big idea that without his help, we just won't get it. But this is an essential part of the plan that having destroyed all the rebellious powers, Jesus Christ will deliver a kingdom and then he will submit himself in this kingdom to God the Father. Let's first of all just affirm that that's what the text says and then we will explain it. Verses 27 and 28. For God, that is the Father, has put all things in subjection under his, that is Christ's feet. But, when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Read that another way. It is plain that God is accepted because God put all things in subjection under him. And by God, I mean God the Father. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, that is Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, that is the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that is Christ, that God may be all in all. <laughs> what are you telling us, Paul? <laughs> this is not easy to understand. But just to put it simply, Jesus Christ, God puts everything under the power of Jesus. After Jesus destroys every rebellious power, Jesus submits himself to God the Father, and in submitting himself, he submits the kingdom that submits to him. So Jesus submits the kingdom and himself, the king of this kingdom, to God the Father. We have to realize, if we're, if we're not going to mess this up, we have to realize that the subjection and by subjection, what are we talking about? That, that's the word that Paul uses. Subjection means submission, right? It's this idea that I'm going to submit myself, I'm going to position myself under your authority. 
So what this text is claiming is that Jesus Christ is going to submit himself under the authority of God the Father. But what we have to realize in claiming this is that God, therefore, is submitting to God. Jesus is not some secondary God. He's not some half-God or, or lesser God. Everything that makes God who He is, Jesus, as the Son of God, shares with the Father and the Spirit. So what we cannot conclude is that somehow Jesus is inferior to the Father. Jesus is not inferior to the Father. So what we are claiming here is that in the subjection of Jesus Christ to God the Father, that God in His omnipotent, glorious wisdom has said that God shall submit to God. Put another way, this is a voluntary act of submission by the Son of God to the Father. And this submission is not required. It's not necessary according to the nature or the power or the worth or the glory of either the Son or the Father. They are equal in every way. Jesus Christ is equal to the Father in every way. And yet... Jesus says, I submit myself and my kingdom to the authority and the sovereignty of the Father. Just stay with me. This is so amazing. If the Holy Spirit will open your mind to this, it will just unleash an ocean of worship in your soul. The question then is this, why? Why does Jesus Christ, who is equal to the Father, submit Himself to the Father? In order to answer this, we have to keep in mind a full biblical theology. And I'm going to simplify this by contrasting two kingdoms. The first kingdom is the kingdom of the devil. Scripture says that Satan is the prince of this world. Satan has a kingdom. And this kingdom was founded on rebellion. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and, and Satan, we are told, not very clearly, but we're told that he was a glorious angel. A beautiful, brilliant, powerful angel. He wanted to be God. And so he rebelled against God, and in rebelling, he convinced some angels to come with him. In rebelling, he convinced humanity to fall with him. And in so doing, Satan established a kingdom. That's really important. Because what Jesus is doing is he is going to establish a kingdom that is the opposite of Satan's kingdom. The devil's kingdom is categorized by death. Satan can only reign over a kingdom of death because Satan's kingdom is founded on rebellion. Rebellion is sin. God will not put up with rebellion, sin, indefinitely. He will destroy it, as we've already talked about. 
Therefore, Satan's kingdom will fall and be destroyed by death, which is the final judgment, the lake of fire, the second death. There's a lot. But all you have to know is God will not contend with Satan forever. At the head of this kingdom of death, the devil leads. He is a leader. He is leading an open rebellion against God by refusing to subject himself. And remember, Satan is a mere creature who is not equal to God, but Satan, the king or the prince of this kingdom, is leading an open rebellion against God by refusing to subject himself to the God who made him. That's how we got into this mess in the first place. That's the problem that the gospel seeks to upend and solve. Now, if you know that to be true, then the only solution is to have an alternative kingdom where the king submits to God. Christ's kingdom is the opposite in every way to the devil's kingdom. Whereas the devil's kingdom is categorized by death, Christ's kingdom is categorized by life. In place of rebellion, you have subjection, submission. In the place of fallen angels, in Christ's kingdom, you have holy angels, angels that did not rebel. In place of fallen humanity, what do you have? You have redeemed, resurrected, holy humanity. At the head of this kingdom that Jesus is going to deliver to God the Father, Jesus Christ, contrary to Satan, leads. He's a leader over this kingdom. And what is our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, leading us in? Not rebellion, but total subjection to God. By voluntary, and how does God, Jesus do this? By voluntarily subjecting Himself, God the Son, to God the Father. I mean, that's a lot too. But all you need to know there is that at the head of this new kingdom that is categorized by life, that is composed by resurrection, that has no sin or death, the king of that kingdom is God himself in human form. And whereas the king of, of Satan's kingdom, Satan himself, leads us toward death by rebellion, Jesus Christ as the king must lead us in the opposite direction toward subjection. But Jesus Christ does not ask us to do something that he himself is not doing. This is the, the, the glory of the whole thing. He need not submit himself to the Father. But he does. And in so doing, he safeguards his kingdom from a second fall. Because there's no one to lead in a rebellion anymore. 
Everyone who composes Christ's kingdom has subjected themselves to Christ. The only way that you will be raised from the dead is if you have subjected yourself to the authority of Christ. And if you've subjected yourself to the authority of Christ, where Christ leads, you will go. And if Christ subjects himself to the Father, then the angels and the holy resurrected humans in this kingdom will follow the leadership of the king in subjection to God. And if we with Christ forever subject ourselves to God, there's no rebellion. And if there's no rebellion, there's no sin. And if there's no sin, there's no what? Death. And therefore, death is surely defeated. What does this have to do with resurrection? The devil established his kingdom by corrupting God's creation. Jesus establishes his kingdom by taking back God's creation. Potentially, hypothetically, when creation rebelled against God, that is, fallen angels and fallen humans, God had a number of options. He could have, I suppose, just destroyed everything and started over. But he didn't. Because even that would be defeat for God. That would be to acknowledge that someone could actually rob him, which is impossible. So what does he do? He says, well, I'm going to take it back. You, you smug prince of demons and fallen humanity, you think you can take something from me? You can't. So God doesn't destroy everything, but he sets in motion a plan to take it back. Ultimately, how does God take back what Satan tried to take from him? By resurrection. Jesus Christ comes and dies for, to pay the price of this rebellion. Then he's raised from the dead and all who are in Christ will be raised with him. And not only that, but the creation which is under a curse will be destroyed for the sin of humanity, but then resurrected. New heavens, new earth. Everything is accomplished by God through resurrection. It's by resurrection that God takes back the kingdom that Satan has stolen. And, and anyone who is not willing to come with Christ in this resurrection will be thrown into the lake of fire. But there will be holy angels, there will be holy humans, and there will be a resurrected holy universe all of which has continuity with the very creation that God started when he said, let there be light. And all of this is safeguarded from a second fall. Wouldn't that be terrible if God took everything back and then we fell again? That will never happen. Why? Because the king of the kingdom has put himself, though he need not, in subjection to God the Father. And we who are in subjection to the king will follow the leadership of the king in submitting ourselves forever to the Father. And therefore, God is all in all.
What does that mean? It means that God gives everything to God and God gives everything back to God. Put another way, the Father gives everything to Jesus Christ. Imagine if God had given everything to the devil. What the devil would have done is tried to kill God. But no, God the Son, having received everything from God the Father, says, having received everything for you and being all-powerful and being at the top of this kingdom, I'm not going to hold on to it myself. I'm going to give it back to you. And in this mutual giving of everything from the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father, we are safeguarded from ever falling into a second rebellion. We will not rebel again. It's glorious. And all of this by resurrection. How do you know you'll never rebel again? Well, you will not be raised from the dead unto eternal life unless you have made an eternal commitment to submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your entry into the kingdom. And the fruit of that submission, which is brought about only by the power of God, we are too rebellious to do that ourselves, but God gives us the power to do that by submitting ourselves to Jesus Christ. He says, okay, I will raise you up to be my subjects in my kingdom where there is no rebellion, there is no death. Jesus establishes his kingdom by resurrection. First of himself, then those who belong to him, then he gives himself and those who belong to him in eternal perfect, final, ultimate, enduring submission to God the Father, we are saved. It all goes together, though that, that's not where I would have gone if I was writing this chapter. Let's close this out. Can we simplify this, <laughs> please? Let's, let's try and simplify this. Jesus is going to deliver a kingdom to God the Father. This kingdom will be free of all rebellion, all sin, and all death. Jesus establishes this kingdom by taking back what the devil tried to steal from God. And he does this by paying the ultimate price for sin, by rising from the dead as the king, and by raising those who belong to Christ to be his subjects in a kingdom. He will then destroy everyone else who is in continuing rebellion. Everyone who is raised from the dead is raised from the dead because we have submitted ourselves to Christ. As king, he takes a group of people who are in submission to him and he submits us by submitting himself to God the Father. That's the plan of the gospel. In closing then, let's reveal, revel in this good news. God considers death to be his enemy. He doesn't want people rebelling against him. I love that we worship a God who hates death. Don't you love that you, you come to worship a God who hates death? He, he's grieved at death. God promises to destroy death. When we put ourselves on God's side, we declare that we will be victorious over death. 
Death will not win. Death will not keep your body as a trophy. You will enter into an eternal kingdom with Christ as the King in your body. So perfect is God's power over death. God will destroy death by raising those who belong to Christ from the dead. Death cannot claim our bodies. God will safeguard His kingdom from sin and death forever. How will He do that? The King of this kingdom will submit us and Himself to God the Father forever. No more rebellion. No more death. What what a plan! What a God. So how does this impact you? How does it impact me? How does it change your view of death? No one, if you submit yourself to Christ, can rob you of life in this body. No one. Death may knock you down, but you will stand up. And therefore, what is there to fear in death? You see, it's two totally different worldviews to say, well, you only live once. If I'm lucky, 80 or 90 or 100 years at best, and then I die. And then maybe I go to heaven. But that's kind of murky and I don't really know. That's one way of looking at things. Another way of looking at things is this. I'm going to live forever in this body, interrupted by a short amount of time by death. That's totally different. You don't have 60 years left or 10 years left or one year left or five months left or one day left. You've got infinite days left interrupted by a short sleep in the dust of the earth. That changes everything. And if you start thinking about the fact that you will live in this body forever... Not that you will exist as sort of a a collection of intellectual or a place of consciousness, but you will live just like you're living now forever. That changes everything. How does this change your view of life? We have infinite years to live, as I said, with just a short interruption. Even the grief we experience by the passing of loved ones is comforted if they are in Christ. How does this change your view of risk? We hate risk. I don't want to risk anything, let alone my body. I want to be comfortable, I want to be pampered. I want to be rich. I want to be secure. I want to, I want to make sure that I'm covered for my retirement. Your retirement's covered. It's called resurrection. We can risk everything. What are we willing to risk for the gospel? Are you willing to risk some comfort, some security, some planning to just lay it all out there? Here's the promise of God. You, you lay it all out there now and He'll raise you back to life and He'll let you reign with Him for all of the ages, plural, to come. Resurrection, you see, removes all risk and it empowers us to 
to, to just give it all, lay it all out there. And I don't know about you, but there's going to be a lot of um, North Americans at the end of this life who, by God's grace, will be raised from the dead, but, oh, we, we just didn't pour it out. We got distracted. Our priorities got totally turned upside down. I know that to be true of me. Is it true of you? I'm preaching on resurrection, so there's still time. There is still time to change the course of our lives so at the end of our days we need not have regret. Lastly, how does this change your view of submission? We hate the word submission. Wives, submit to your husbands. Members, submit to your elders. Christians, submit to your governing authorities. Children, submit to your parents. Slaves, submit to your masters. Employees, submit to your employers. We hate it! But at the end, God is going to submit to God. This whole kingdom is built from the bottom up on submission. If, if you can't submit to your husband, how are you going to submit to Christ? If you can't submit to your employer, how are you going to submit to Christ? If you can't submit to the governing authorities, yes, they're unbelievers, yes, they have bad policies, but if we can't submit to them, how are we going to submit to Christ? Children, if you can't submit to your parents, how are you going to submit to Christ? And here's the thing, entrance into this kingdom is by resurrection, who's going to be raised? Those who submit. Oh, if we could just get over ourselves. Christ has gotten over himself. He came and submitted to the point of death, not for himself, but for us. And then God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. And you know what Jesus does with that all-powerful uh, position in the kingdom? He says, you know what? I think I'm going to submit still to the Father to safeguard my kingdom from a second fall by rebellion into death. Oh, if you believe in resurrection, prove it by submission. Praise be to God who will be all in all. God gives everything to God. God gives everything back to God. And we live forever without sin, rebellion, and death. What a plan. Let's worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't know if I was clear. And in the end, no one will receive this preaching but by your Spirit. I pray, Holy Spirit, help us to understand these things Fill us with the knowledge of the goal of the gospel, which is resurrection, which is the means toward the deliverance of a kingdom where there is no rebellion, there is no death, there's just eternal subjection and life forever. Praise be to God.
through our King, the resurrected Jesus Christ. Amen.